if you stare at Hannah for long enough without like making any movement, she kind of just starts glitching. I'm so easy to break down psychologically, so don't even try. I know we didn't even mention this in the Gaslight episode that Hannah is the easiest person to gaslight in the world. I don't trust my memory ever. This morning, I spent half an hour stressing because I couldn't remember if I took my ADHD medication or not. And then I was like, Hannah, your blinds were open. And she was like, what? Because I was like, oh, I haven't gotten out of bed yet or I hadn't gotten out of bed yet. So there's no way I could have taken them because they're across the room. But then Maya was like, your blinds are open. And I was like, oh, I must have gotten out of bed. And I must have done both of those things. And neither of which I remember. And I was gaslighting her the entire time. Her blinds were never open. No, they weren't. No, they weren't. Hannah, (laughs) you're crazy. No, they weren't. (laughs) There's something wrong with me. I gaslight myself all the time. You have ADD. Who are you? I'm Hannah and I have ADD. ADHD, actually. Thank you. I'm Maya, and I recently found out I have OCD, so I get to be in the same club. Oh, my God. They're not really the same thing. They're not at all. (laughs) (laughs) And this is Rehash, a podcast about the social media phenomenons that strike a nerve in our culture, only to be quickly forgotten, but we think are due for a revisiting. This season is all about internet archetypes and the many, many lives they've lived. If you like our show and want to hear more from us, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash rehash podcast, where we have monthly bonus episodes, weekly minisodes, and early access to our regular programming. If you don't want to join the Patreon, feel free to rate and review us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, because that would help us out a lot. We've been covering the gaslight gatekeep girl boss trifecta in theme with the season's endeavor to get to the heart of social media's favorite empty terminology. What does it all mean? We're here to give the people some answers. Today, we're doing gatekeep. Yeah. Over the past few weeks when we've been researching, I'll be like, did you work on gaslight today? I just will be like, how far along are you with uh, dirt bags? Yeah, and it's like, oh, girl boss is coming along really well, actually. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, Our job's fake. When we first conceived of the season, I was really excited to focus on gatekeep, like right off the bat, because it's the word I think has been stretched the furthest from its original meaning, that it actually might mean the exact opposite at this point. Hannah. Yeah? Can you give me a very brief cursory definition of what gatekeep means to you? I first heard gatekeep in a sociology class, and from my understanding, it's when, you know, people in positions of power kind of decide who is in and who is out and who has access to something and who doesn't. Uh, So I assume gatekeep is a verb done by gatekeepers, the people in charge of (laughs) that stuff. Yeah, you're you're mostly basically right. It Thank is you. a sociology term, and the word is actually gatekeeper, which we'll get to. Um, I would say that it doesn't actually just apply to people and deciding who is in and who is out. It can also be like what is in, what is out. Mm. So the term gatekeep was initially used in a 1947 study by social psychologist Kurt Lewin, where he analyzes changing food habits within a given population, and he realizes that the best way to conduct this type of study is to focus on tastemakers or people who are in key positions as he puts Mm. it, within that population to get a better sense of how the public's habits are influenced. Uh, So when looking at the channel of food traveling from production sites to grocery stores to the dinner table, he finds that housewives are the primary buyers of food and therefore the primary decision makers about what makes it onto the table and what stays in the store. Um, And I want to be clear again that he never uses the word gatekeep or gatekeeping. He refers to this narrowing of the channel, like where the wife is stopped in front of the food and makes a decision about it as a gate section. This isn't limited to food channels, though. Lewin also says that there are gate sections in the passage of information from, like, news communication channels, which decide what is isn't shared with the public. Um, this is also called, like, agenda setting in journalism. There's also a gate section in universities among the admission boards, which determine which types of students are in and which aren't suitable for entrance. This is where the word finally kind of comes in. He says, gate sections are governed either by impartial rules or by gatekeepers. In the latter case, an individual or group is in power for making the decision between in and out. So are there ways that you can see this having a negative impact? Gatekeepers? Well, I mean, the idea that there are a select 
group of people who are determining who is in and who is out or what is in and what is out of a culture or like who gets to participate in something i mean there's always a potential for bad results from that especially i mean talking about something like academia like the idea of like a board who kind of gets to determine whether or not somebody is worthy of a certain type of education just as one example but of course there are many circumstances where i think gatekeeping can be a negative thing well yeah especially with academic gatekeeping it treats education as a privilege and not a right i think what it really comes down to is access like academic gatekeeping restricts your access to knowledge which populations then become the knowledge holders then there's like the have nots the populations that aren't the knowledge holders and it's kind of a way of like restricting class consciousness in a way right yeah and i think also just generally even if we're talking about things like the idea of this certain group of consumers deciding what is like a valuable thing versus another just any one group being like the one that gets to decide these things for us well totally and because it's a select group of people who are occupying like these key positions it's usually the same people so like white cis and straight who are deciding what's in and what's out which means that marginalized groups never get like a hold of the cultural Mm -hmm. apparatus this is what lewin says about it he says quote Discrimination against minorities will not be changed as long as forces are not changed which determine the decisions of the gatekeepers. Their decisions depends partly on their ideology, that is the system of values and beliefs which determine what they consider to be good or bad, and aptly on the way they perceive the particular situation. Mm-hmm. So, like, what is the ideology of the society we live in and who are the people who have benefited from that ideology? Yeah, You exactly. can only guess. <laughs> are there any tangible ways you've seen or heard gatekeeping played out historically? I mean, I think this is like broad, but like even thinking about the United States and when like groups of immigrants were coming through the United States, they were selective about what type of immigrants they wanted. There was that whole backlash where there were a ton of Chinese immigrants that came to the United States and then they decided that they didn't want them there. And so they like went out of their way to make it harder to get there or to stay there or Just the idea of, yeah, what new populations do we think are going to contribute to, like, the formation of this country? The productivity, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, So, I mean, it's a big example, but as far as history goes and history in North America, it's a pretty clear example. Yeah, I think that's a great example. I think the concept of, like, a skilled worker being the only type of person who is granted access to... yeah, also, immigration. Also the idea of like certain immigrant populations at some point are valuable and then at another point aren't valuable and like you're changing position. The there. Chinese I mean, railroad workers. Yeah, exactly. Or just how different groups their positioning within the United States has changed over time because the gatekeepers have like allowed them to either be more valuable or less valuable. I think that's like a great tangible example because it's a literal border. Like there is a literal gate that you need to get through. Same as like airport security if we're even considering actual gates. Like what type of person is granted? It has the... What kind the, of person? The liberty to travel around the world at whim without being scared about it, you know? Yeah. Who has never actually been worried about having to pass through a border? I haven't. I know for sure. That is definitely an example of gatekeeping. Totally. What always comes to mind for me is wealth gatekeeping. I think a lot about the way wealthy people use status symbols, like like broken bags, for example, to indicate to everyone around them that they hold a certain position of power in our society. But the second that that status symbol becomes accessible and affordable to lower income people, or you know, becomes mass produced, it no longer has that status value, mm-hmm. and then wealthy people will like move the goalpost What's and it? switch to another item. We'll get into the idea of status or cult value like a bit later, but in this case, it's like rich people determining what's in or out and then influencing people to copy or clamor to attain it Mm -hmm. uh, just to be able to fit in. Uh, I read this really interesting book once called The Classic Slum by a guy named Robert Roberts. Uh, And it's basically a deep dive into the culture of early 20th century slums in London. So Roberts grew up in one of these slums. And what was so interesting is that he finds that poor people are so often associated with dirt and filth that they actually try much harder to overcome that. So the poor families in these slums were actually like really intent on being clean or smelling nice just to appeal to richer people or at least to be invisible in their proximity Mm -hmm. and not like the target of their disgust or like abjection. Right. Of course. You know somebody isn't worrying about being gatekept when they're not actually putting in any effort to, like, appeal to people because they're... So, like, like stinky rich people, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Genuinely, yeah. Like, my family is 
because they're immigrants and because they're people of color, like, are so intent on being clean. Like, my grandma was so intent on looking elegant and, like, looking put together and sounding put together because it's, it's like a defensive thing. Like, you don't want to be considered lower and you're so tired of being considered lower that you have to kind of compensate for that. Of course, yeah. Whereas my family got to be stinky, arty bohemians because <laughs> we're white. <laughs> yeah, like in, in his book, Some of the Poor People in These Slums, it's such a fascinating book. I recommend it to everyone. But there's one really interesting part about uh, all these people in the community would get these like little thing pieces for their mantelpiece. And like it was like a little status symbol to be like, look, I have this thing on my mantelpiece. And everyone who would come over their house would be like, oh, my God, you must have kind of moved up in society. But meanwhile, it's just like this object. Do you think there's an instance of gatekeeping historically where it may not have been like a negative thing? Or maybe it's like a bit more nuanced than just saying like this is a bad thing? There are certain jobs or fields where it is required to uh, perform some level of gatekeeping. There's a reason why, like, lawyers have the LSATs and doctors have medical school and all those exams that I don't know the names of. Somebody needs to be competent. Yeah, exactly. Like, obviously, I don't think they should be expensive, but I think I agree that I yeah. think, like, you can't, I'm not going to wake up tomorrow morning and be like, I'm just going to go be an engineer. And if you try to gatekeep me from being an engineer, I'm going to be really mad. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, obviously, there's like gatekeeping that goes into like, who gets led into the schools that lead to this? And like, there is negative gatekeeping that factors into them eventually reaching that decision point. And yeah. I think that it's not like this is an objective form of gatekeeping, like, oh, either you're a good doctor or you're not. But somebody needs to be passing some kind of standards. Yeah, totally. And expert standards of expertise. Yeah. Even with journalism, like I wouldn't consider that. I would consider that more of a neutral form of gatekeeping. I do think it can play out in negative ways where because they're agenda setting and they're prioritizing certain stories and certain like headlines, there are certain media narratives that kind of get constructed out of that that can definitely be harmful. But I don't think that necessarily agenda setting is a terrible thing. Like, obviously, there has to be a certain amount of things that are prioritized in the news. So it's it kind of goes both ways. It can be bad, but I don't think it's inherently a bad thing. Yeah, except for, like, members of the royal family die and then it doesn't actually matter what's in the news because here in Canada, that's the agenda. You gotta tell that story. Commonwealth. <laughs> London Bridge did fall down. There's something that came up recently that I want to talk about. It's something that kind of made me draw a line in my head between academic gatekeeping like what we talked about earlier and intellectual gatekeeping so i wanted to bring in a friend of the show rain fisher kwan love her <laughs> to talk a bit about intellectual gatekeeping because this is a subject she's discussed quite a bit on her tiktok for those of you who might not remember rain is a canadian legend and <laughs> overall baby genius <laughs> who became famous for her Substack essays and philosophical tiktok videos uh we mentioned her in the last season during our lindsay ellis episode because rain had coined the term getting woman which aptly defines the process by which female celebrities are forcibly taken out of the spotlight once they reach their expiration date in the public eye. People like Rain and myself who use kind of heightened language in our work have had to think a lot about whether the language we use is alienating people who may not have access to that language. So I sat down with her to discuss. Uh, here's Rain. I talk on, you know, TikTok and stuff and I write essays about cultural issues. Um, I do cultural criticism and sometimes like in those videos, this particularly happens on TikTok, in those videos, I'll use like specific words that, you know, can be on the longer side. Like I use the word aesthetic. I sometimes use the word like pathologize or pathologization. And sometimes I feel a little inclined to judge when people are like, this is like an egregiously long word for you to use. But I do want to remind myself that there are like, there's kids on TikTok. It's like, I probably didn't know the word pathologization when I was 15. So I try to have empathy for it. But literally since I started like two years ago, the most common criticism that I have ever gotten is people will be like, you're, you're gatekeeping these ideas or your language isn't accessible and you are like, turning people away from the left when you use this kind of language and only people who have graduated university could understand what you're trying to say and it's often usually in service of this idea that I'm like pretending to be smarter than I am or purposefully trying to like exclude people to make me and people who can understand me like feel better about ourselves and the the thing is is that especially in a medium where you have maybe 60 seconds maximum like two or three minutes to express what are often like very complex points, you know, that 
is like quite literally the purpose of complex language um you know like that's why complex language exists is to be able to describe like complicated issues or ideas in like the shortest amount of time possible yeah yeah with you know maximum precision and um i think that tiktok unfortunately you know there are many situations in which it would be good for people to be able to express ideas in like the simplest possible terms like Mm. to, to bring people in and to provide a starting point I don't think that everybody needs to be doing that work. I think it's like, this also feels like a buzzword, but I think it can it can border on anti-intellectualism when we say that everybody needs to be providing like the lowest level of introductory content because complex ideas exist for a reason. And mm-hmm. I think that we should all be trying to reach towards complex ideas and, and using appropriate language to describe those ideas. I also think there's like a distinction between complex ideas and complex vocabulary even Mm -hmm, yeah and I think both are really important and like complex vocabulary kind of or supports complex ideas again TikTok is like a lot of different kinds of people can see your videos so Mm -hmm. I I do always try to provide those explanations I try to engage in like extended conversations I provide reading material like all of those things because I want people to be able to access these ideas Mm -hmm. um So that almost makes it especially frustrating when these, like, you know, again, almost like ubiquitous criticisms come out because the first thing is that that's just how I talk. And it's like Mm -hmm. how I've, like, always talked. You're friends with me. I'm sure you've heard me (laughs) talk like that. She's using some flutey-tooty language all the time. And, I, I mean, it almost feels, I feel a little insulted when people are like, well, nobody who doesn't have a university education could understand this because I don't have a university education. And I, like... Mm had to drop out of university due to institutional barriers, actually. And, like, you know, that's not to say, like, I I personally spent a lot of time, like, while I was working to support myself, like, I spent a lot of time, like, finding, like, free essays and, like, reading material on the internet and talking to my university-educated friends. And, like, I do understand how there's a lot of people who don't have the time or the ability to do that. But I do think it can almost border on, like, almost a reverse kind of classism when people are like no poor person could ever be able to understand these words to say those big old words i think that sometimes this language of like gatekeeping can give people what feels like a more morally justified way to say like i don't think you should be talking like that which I think often is related to, like, being a woman, not to pull out that card. I'm getting, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> not to pull out that card, but I do get the sense, and this isn't everybody, but there's a lot of times where I get the sense that somebody, you know, on some level is just kind of annoyed by by me talking like this, or they feel threatened, or they feel insecure, or, like, like you know what I mean? Yeah, do you ever totally. feel that? And, yeah. and that the being able to say, like, you're not being accessible, or you're gatekeeping, or why can't you just talk, like using basic words like it, mm. it almost I think feels to people like a more morally justified or like progressive way to say like fuck you for talking like this you know and also like part of this kind of the ironic thing here is that we're talking so much about we're trafficking in this language of like accessibility but at the same time your entire like what your entire role is in popular culture right now is to kind of take university level ideas and present them oh, to a mass audience totally. on a mass platform and I feel the same way and like I think part of what I've at least I think what I've kind of like appealed to people with is the fact that like yeah a lot of these things can't really be taught outside of school except now that all of these mass platforms have allowed this to happen yeah something that's really important like the questions that I ask myself when I think about accessibility are like do people have to pay an exorbitant amount of money to access mm. this information? Is this information available in different formats for people who, like, you know, have trouble reading in a certain way, who need to, who need captions or who need audio or whatever, which TikTok and YouTube videos both provide that service. Like, mm-hmm. is is this, like, are uh, definitions to these words easily available in some way? Which, yes, they always are, either by providing them or through Google. Like, you know, do, do you have to go through, like, a ridiculous amount of hoops to access this content? Do you have to apply for something to access these content? this content? Mm-hmm. These are, like, real questions of intellectual accessibility that exist in a million different places in the world. I mean, the university, the academic institution is the mm-hmm. biggest example of that, where you literally quite literally cannot you are gay kept by almost a physical gate like we were talking about earlier from accessing that kind of information 
it indicates to me that people aren't exactly operating in good faith when they don't think about any of those questions of accessibility and the only question that's on their mind is like are they using a couple words that are more than three syllables you know do you have an intended audience when you're making your content or when you're writing your essays like is there a person that you're envisioning in your mind what what does that process look like for you? Yeah, totally. And I mean, this is also like, I'm glad that you asked that question because I think about this a lot. Like my audience generally is between like 16 year old girls, 15, 16 year old girls up to like, you know, 30 year old women, which is a wonderful, big, like wide, diverse audience to have. Um, also, I get men too, but mostly I, I write for the girls. Um, and, uh, you know, like I'm 21. I, I've been... 16 for a long time was 16 for a long time (laughs) and something that is really important to me when I write is that I don't want to talk down to these women like you know like when when I was 16 and again like you know I've had certain intellectual or academic privileges but when I was 16 like I didn't want to be talked to like a Mm seven-year-old because people do always say that they say if you can't explain it to a seven-year-old you don't really understand it but 15-year-old girls like 16-year-old girls like that is a smart demographic. That is like a group of people that are exceptionally capable, exceptionally smart, exceptionally, almost uniquely like curious and ambitious. And I wouldn't want to talk to them like they're babies, like, you know, and they don't want to be talked to like that. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. The concept of the fact that you know the niche that you're kind of presenting to. I also know the niche I'm presenting to. There's like a benefit with having like YouTube analytics. I also have almost an identical, you know, subsect of the population. And I kind of wonder what the tension is there between presenting and writing for a niche and writing for absolutely everyone. And like what writing for everyone, what that would do to someone's work like I and I'm not even putting value on either of those things like I think Mm. it's important to be able to be accessed by everyone I think it's important to like target a niche and I wonder just what the tension is between that because I think there is kind of a fundamental tension I don't think that I'm writing I don't think my videos are made for everyone I like often reference things that only people kind of in my general like thought circles or like political circles would kind of know yeah and I used to get feel bad about that now I feel a bit less bad about it because I'm kind of using my YouTube as a conduit for other things but like I I do think I don't know I I just think that's interesting I I think that the idea of wanting to write for everyone is just I think it's kind of a failed project like I think it's impossible like the only way to write for everybody is to write in a way that is totally devoid of personality or uh, originality or like just to write in a way that's totally toothless you know if you want everybody to be able to agree with and connect with what you're saying um you know if you're going to write anything that is personal at all or that is like based out of like passion or like personal conviction at all which like all good criticism should be it's inherently not going to be for everybody because I don't know I can't I can't think of any like interesting person that is like loved by everybody or that like you know what I mean that like that everybody feels like they understand um especially when you're writing to to a community of people that is is marginalized in some way and I think like this is especially true when I think of like black writers who are punished for like using AAVE or like using you know like cultural slang in their writing when you're writing for like a specific group of people like there is a lot of power in being able to use specific community and cultural references so like i really enjoy like you know referencing the ideas and the cultural fixations of young women because i want young women to feel connected to my work i want them to feel respected and i wouldn't want to write any other way you know yeah there's kind of a catharsis that comes out of specificity and like specific language and getting that and feeling seen in certain words and certain terms and phrases and I think that's something really special the the definition of accessibility also has become so blurred because I think some people use the word accessibility to mean like you know literally able to access like Mm -hmm. you know like can I immediately can anybody access this and understand it and then some people use the term accessibility to mean like a more disciplined study of like structural and institutional barriers you know like there's like there's accessibility in the context of like disability justice Mm. accessibility in the in the context of like class and racial justice and I think sometimes those two things like the, the fact that there are two popular definitions of that word can be troublesome because somebody will aim to make their work accessible in the sense that it is 
mindful of people with disabilities. It's a, it's available for people with different needs. Mm-hmm. It's available for, you know, people who have class or financial barriers. Um, and then there are people who will say, well, that's not accessible because I don't know what the word aesthetic means. Not to be a bitch. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's kind of collapsing and this always happens. And basically, this is kind of the conclusion I come to every time I do anything. But it is kind of collapsing like an individual problem with a systemic one. Because sometimes, yeah, you are just a person who doesn't know what one single word means or like what a word means. Or you don't have as expansive of a vocabulary as another individual. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes... Yeah, you are a person who is systemically disadvantaged by our society because of the way that our society is structured benefits yeah. only able-bodied people or like able able people in general. Yeah, it's. I wonder if there's a distinction between the words like accessibility and availability. Almost. Yeah. No, that's a that I think that there should be. You know, <laughs> like that's a very good point. And you know, I want to clarify that like I think that in general, like even within um, progressive communities, like there is usually not enough done to make content accessible to like disabled people to people with like intellectual disabilities Mm -hmm. um to people who you know like for whatever reason like don't have enough time in the day to be doing all of the reading and to be doing all of the research like and I think that there I think that there's a big problem in you know the leftist community because there definitely needs there needs to be people who are making content that can be available to those people in an ideal world I think that there would be kind of a like a, like a synthesis of many different kinds of thinkers and writers and creators in a leftist community where there would be people who are providing like introductory content and then people who are providing, you know, like, which I think both of us do, like kind of mid-level, like um, content that can appeal to both like academically educated people and beginners that can bridge that gap. And then people who are doing very high level, like theory heavy content. Mm-hmm. I think that would be ideal because it can mean that anybody can work their way up to any level and start addressing those issues. But the thing is, is that even in that ideal world, and there in in this world, there are a lot of people who are doing introductory content. But in any world, like not everybody can be doing all of those things, and it's nobody's responsibility to be doing all, all of those things, you know. So I think sometimes it also just ends up being a case of like misplaced frustration because the frustration is really valid like I have been frustrated when I'm trying to like understand what Foucault is talking about and I literally like don't understand the words on the page oh, those translated words. <laughs> <laughs> that is like frustrating for me when I'm like 19 and I'm not in school and I'm like mm-hmm. you know like I really understand that but it's something that is not any individual's responsibility you know me reading Donna Haraway and every single time being like, I totally understand cybernetics and not understanding it at all. Like, no. That becomes, I think that kind of gets conflated in this debate because a lot of people feel frustrated with like the jargon of very academic writing. And I do think like a lot of academics are so insular Mm -hmm. that like when they write the people they're writing for are just other academics, like other PhDs. Their mm-hmm. work only really gets trickled down into like the undergrad realm once yeah, they reach totally. like a certain level of popularity. But like they're really writing for other people in their tiny little insulated cocoon. And I also think like honestly, I feel like half of academia is just like people getting acclimated to reading the most boring fucking writing like available. Me, <laughs> That's me every single day of my life. <laughs> like I actually think like a like a primary like discipline of academia is just like to get to make people's brains able to like read like the densest possible writing like that genuinely is like an academic skill i often read uh academic literature and i'm like what are they talking about i remember we were researching for your video on abject women in horror (laughs) and i still to this day don't know what that article was saying julia christiva not one word of sense is to be made out of yeah and i really really wanted to get it i really did but i just couldn't understand it and like i don't necessarily think that that makes me unintelligent like i feel confident in in my intelligence but i also think you know i'm around people who went to mcgill all the time and like i know that like there are times where i don't know what everybody is talking about and i feel but that's that's truly anyone like i don't think that like, I think that you very much can keep up with conversation. Thank there are you. so many things I don't know anything about that I would not be able to keep up with. It's not that I feel insecure in it. And I don't need people to, like, explain to me. I mean, especially, like, words like aesthetic. I don't I don't even think that that's a big word, really. Well, for me, it comes down to the difference is, like, 
you can use a big word, but use it in an intelligent and comprehensible way. Or you can use a bunch of big words and put them within a sentence structure that is very hard to understand and overly complicated. Well, the thing is, is that I think sometimes the people who use the biggest words have the least to say, but I don't. I think you and Rain are both exceptions to that. <laughs> I do, honestly. And I like, you know, I was watching her TikToks before we knew her personally. And I do think that she articulates large ideas in like a very digestible way very easily. And I think that's a specific talent that she has. It must still be annoying to face that criticism, even if it's not really true. I don't know. But also like I like I still have some university education under my belt. Like I can't actually speak for somebody who hasn't had the opportunity to do those things so like I actually don't know how objective I am either you know with all this discussion of social media platforms and accessibility and even the concept of intellectual gatekeeping which we haven't really decided is a form of gatekeeping I feel like prior to this like we've been discussing what is considered far more traditional forms of gatekeeping which all basically center on a system of power where only people with access to the cultural apparatus can determine what and who is in or out which restricts access for marginalized people but now i want to talk about the way gatekeeping is used most often today and then we can kind of do a little assessment of how it's evolved over time i guess okay (laughs) this is something i complain about all the time. The most common way I see the word gatekeep brought up on social media is when a random person, typically a girl, posts a video on TikTok and all the comments under it are begging for her to tell them where she got a certain garment or sometimes her entire outfit from. And then if the girl doesn't tell them where she got it from, they go, stop gatekeeping. I've seen it with makeup gurus too, like if they don't share the name of a certain product. Uh, one time I saw it with a girl who posted this really beautiful 35 millimeter video of a trip she took somewhere where everyone in the comments was calling her a gatekeeper for not sharing the model of camera she used to film the video. Mm-hmm. I see a lot of clips from like film and television on my TikTok for you page. Like it'll just be like an out of context clip and people will in the comments sometimes be like, tell us what this is like what is this stop gatekeeping what film or tv show this is but i feel like people usually tell them in the end like it's not a big deal they always kind of get what they want in the end but the thing is is that in those cases i'm like i do want to know what movie or tv show this is because i just watched a clip from it i want to know what it is that's true i don't think that that is personally privileged information to have. <laughs> no i don't think so how would you define or like constitute this version of gatekeeping the word has sort of been warped into meaning you are not giving me what I want or you are not telling me what I want to hear and so therefore you're gatekeeping me from that information regardless of like whether or not they're actually going through the processes of what makes gatekeeping gatekeeping yeah I think that's the perfect way to describe it I think this kind of was born out of a later shift where gatekeeping meant like you can't wear this band t-shirt like I keep seeing girls wear thrasher t-shirts on the street and that makes me really mad because I'm a skateboarder like that kind of thing which is kind of like the predecessor to the internet form of gatekeeping like the one you just described I once had this like douchey kid in high school come up to me at a party I was wearing a Grateful Dead t-shirt which I was wearing because we just threw my dad an actual deadhead a Grateful Dead themed 50th birthday party and I came from that to this other party and this guy goes do you know what that is I was like yeah obviously it's on my shirt but also like the Grateful Dead teddy bear is a pretty iconic like piece of imagery you dickwad even if I didn't know their music obviously i know what they are and i did know their music uh, the same thing happened to me I. at our high school the punks were the bullies because we went to an arts high school and i was at the convenience store next to the school one day and i was coming out and these two punk girls came up to me and i was wearing this nirvana t-shirt that i bought at hmv <laughs> I mean, I loved Nirvana at the time. I love that for you. I think you're entitled to I also loved Nirvana, but I was wearing it with little, like, flower shorts and a scrunchie. And they were like, um, do you even know who Nirvana is? And I was like, yes, I really do know who they are. And then I started to try to explain to them um, my love for it. And they laughed at me and walked away. I'm sorry. No one in North America doesn't know who Nirvana is. They're one of the most famous bands of like the last 30 years. Like that's insane. Yeah, it was insane. But again, they were teenagers. Um, So I went to the most trustworthy source to find a valid definition of this like new form of gatekeeping. Urban Dictionary? Urban Dictionary. Urban Dictionary? 
I wanted to find one that was the most accurate to internet gatekeeping, so this is the one I found. Quote, Gatekeeping is to make your interests exclusive in order to protect them from becoming mainstream. Mm-hmm. Which, like, I think that is kind of a predecessor to what we now think gatekeeping is. Like, it's this idea of why are you trying to make this thing only for you when it could be for everyone? Like, that kind of is what Well, the idea is. of, like, you don't want somebody uncool wearing the kind of shirt that you wear because you, you want it to be amongst the kind of people that you want to be seen as being a part of. Yes. I just want to think about the ways that this definition differs from the original meaning of gatekeepers. In its original definition, like, gatekeeping requires sort of a group of people who are, like, the arbiters of who does or does not get to use this or what does or does not get used. It's, like, actively selective. Gatekeeping somebody's access to an object access to an object versus gatekeeping access to knowledge for example are two very different things right or access to information that might benefit them within society but also like when a girl on tiktok doesn't tell you where your her shirt is from she's not going oh i only want this type of person to maybe she's thinking this but she's not saying like you get to know and you don't get to know she's just keeping it to herself and like who says that this girl actually has the power to say who does or doesn't get to wear her shirt like I don't know yeah I think and I think that's exactly what I think the difference is I think TikTok has made it so that like everyone and anyone can be a gatekeeper which completely defeats the purpose of it like as Lewin said only a select few people can effectively gatekeep so like at the end of the day it's not gatekeeping also going back to like you what you and Rain were saying like I don't think either of you are actively selecting who you do or do not want to understand the work you're making You're making work with kind of the understanding that the people who are consuming it have the same comprehension levels as you, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're trying to filter out any one type of person or select a certain type of person. Like, you're not trying to be exclusionary. You're just, like, operating on your own personal levels. Maybe some people feel left behind in that, but it's not actually the act of gatekeeping I don't know. Yeah, it's not a selection process. Yeah, and it's also giving you guys a lot of power to decide. The idea that you're sitting there deciding who you want to, like, have access to these ideas. is Sometimes, like, a bigger idea just needs certain words to describe it. We talked about this with the gaslighting. Like, you talked about the flaws of, like, having a singular word encompass, like, a complicated idea. And so, yeah, sometimes you just have to use a bit more in-depth language and, and then in a very meta way that also applies to this very word. <laughs> also, like you guys are talking about online culture, it's like something that is inherently accessible to people. Like a lot of the time, online yeah. culture or film and media, like that is pop culture. Mm. It's not, I'm not saying what you do is low culture, but you're commenting on no. what is considered low culture. I would like to think it's low culture. I love showgirls. Yeah. I feel like gatekeeping in the online lexicon has just kind of labeled any and every type of exclusivity as like a universal bad. I've seen people accuse Hawaiians of gatekeeping their land because they didn't want tourists overriding it during the pandemic. People were like, why are you gatekeeping this place? Like it can be applied literally anywhere. This concept of applying it to marginalized cultures is so crazy. Uh, Rain had some pretty interesting takes on this. So I'm just gonna slide Rain in here again. It's very hard to have insular subcultures or communities on the internet because everything can theoretically, you know, there's kind of algorithmic silos, but everything can be made available to everyone. And I think that that becomes super interesting in a cultural context Mm. because I have seen people like, like on Twitter and stuff, there's like people talk about like black Twitter, which is like, you know, like the kind of loose community of like black people on Twitter who have a really really like vibrant culture and are kind of the comedic backbone of Twitter too. Mm -hmm. And something that is really interesting that I see happen on there is that I think a lot of people, a lot of white people especially, almost develop like a parasocial relationship with the black community. Mm, Like, do you know what I mean? Because like, obviously we all know about parasocial relationships when it's like to a creator or something. Um, But I see it happen so much because people end up consuming like so much comedic or like cultural content that is made by black people but it's obviously a one-sided relationship because you're consuming, but you're not developing an interpersonal relationship with those communities. I feel like I've seen so many people 
feel like they understand the black community or feel like they understand black humor or black slang or the lived experience or like yeah the lived experience because like they're like yeah my algorithm puts me on black twitter like you know what i mean have you ever seen that oh yeah i guess you're you're not like super on twitter Um, (laughs) no i'm I'm so scared of twitter (laughs) but as a platform as a platform but i think it happens like with all kinds of cultures like in a lot of ways on different parts of the internet too and this is where, like, when the question of gatekeeping language comes in, right? Because, like, I meant language more in, like, the intellectual academic sense. But, like, again, there are certain vernaculars that have very much permeated into, like, the mainstream culture in kind of damaging ways. Like, the way that people talk in, like, AAVE all the time. Like, people, yeah. yeah, people who feel like they're a part of these communities and closer to them and have more proximity to them than they are simply by way of being on the internet. That has kind of come into question because a lot of people I've actually seen on TikTok, because I'm more on TikTok, people accusing other people of gatekeeping, like their yeah. own culture. I've seen people accuse black women of gatekeeping curly hair yeah. on, on TikTok. And it's like, that's not what they're doing. No, like their experience is legitimately different. Yeah. Their experience is different. And also it just gatekeeping is not even a part of that conversation. Like the fact <laughs> that that word even enters that debate is just kind of insane. And it's a word that started to kind of creep itself into debates that it doesn't need to be yeah, in. Yeah, totally. 50 years ago or whatever like rich kids living in connecticut like they wouldn't know enough to know that like a punk subculture existed like mm-hmm. they, they wouldn't see these people they like they wouldn't know to know like what slang in southern black communities sounded like you know there was like there was an insulation like just by virtue of physical life Mm -hmm. but now because like you're on the internet you can just see the edges of all of these different communities and i think that those same people they feel this entitlement or they feel this like anger that they're not being invited in because this time they can see like inside the club you know is the gate actually really just berghein and and we're all we're all in line trying to get in (laughs) the bouncer is gatekeeping berghein has anyone noticed that I also think it's like the internet has made it so that all you have to do is kind of touch the most like exterior cultural signifiers of those subcultures without actually understanding like the messages or mm-hmm. lived experiences. And this is not just actual cultures. I mean, like subcultures too, like you were saying with punks and emos and whatever. Those subcultures are kind of like lived communities that get together for whatever which reason and have a lot of like tenets that you kind of abide by within those cultures and the internet has kind of just stripped that all away because all you have to see is like the most empty signs of that culture and take it and like completely rip it and make it your own. Um, not even make it your own, just wear it. Yeah. And it's, to me, I find it depressing and I don't, I don't really understand. I've gone into arguments with friends about this before, but like, I just find it kind of sad, like the death of subculture, I guess. Yeah, no, I'm always thinking about the death of subculture <laughs> um, in part because so much culture just is and like always has been created by marginalized communities like whether that be like just like poor communities creating kind of like a punk or an indie subculture like you know the black communities impact on every kind of music every kind of fashion like the same with like latino communities like so much of like the best particularly the black community again so much of like the best cultural exports have been the product of some kind of like marginalization because like culture and art often you know comes out of necessity or comes out of like a necessity to form a community or to express a pain or like you know mm-hmm. what i mean um, and, and the need to be together and around other human beings yeah for, the yeah for, for survival like, yeah and, yeah for survival exactly i wrote an essay recently called micro individuality that was like a lot about this basically just that i think it's really interesting how individual uniqueness on the internet i think behaves a lot like how products are sold under capitalism Mm -hmm. um because like for instance like if you look at a chip aisle you will see like a million different options for products that are almost identical Uh, a feature of a product under capitalism is that it has to be like it necessarily has to be unique enough to be a, a distinguishable product it has to have certain aesthetic differences in order to be effectively sold but it also can't have risk so it has to be very similar to everything else that exists but with enough like aesthetic um changes to be like a viable like unique commodity mm-hmm. and i think that that's really comparable to how like individuality exists on the internet where it kind of feels all the time like everybody is jostling to stand out in this like crowded room of of like the attention economy of people on the internet but every everything feels the exact same 
but everyone has more of a like individual individuality complex than ever and to me I feel like a big part of that is because like the internet has exacerbated the feeling of like selling yourself as a product so we feel the need to distinguish ourselves to be sold as products are distinguished to be sold under capitalism but to also you know conform to these wider like community standards you know yeah it's kind of comes into that concept of like to me of like celebrity image creation like how do we make this girl just interesting enough that she has a competitive edge but not so interesting as to scare off like yeah a bunch of karen moms like it's that's kind of what that is and yeah we are all just kind of like avatars of ourselves on the internet that are going to be commodified eventually you and i are both commodified to be (laughs) honest like both of us have our own kind of commodified identities on the internet i I, would say i did just right before we filmed this podcast i did just see somebody made a valentine for their girlfriend with a picture of me that said you china rain fisher queef I am an object in the <laughs> that's me commodified. Rainfisher right Kwan, uh, she is the cultural signifier of the queef community. <laughs> the queef that's... community. And I claim that. <laughs> and I'm happy we're there. <laughs> yeah. This is Rainfisher Kwan signing off on behalf of the queef, queef community. Do you think this is just another like harmless example of language evolving and changing? Or do you think that there's something wrong here? I do think that there can be harm when words that were created within somewhere like academia to mean a very specific thing are then like taken and expanded and diluted to be applied wherever they maybe sort of fit in like your most generous definition of the word. Yeah, I think it can be harmful because again, there is real gatekeeping that goes on institutionally in our culture when our primary examples of the word are these like more frivolous things that we see online then we don't take it as seriously when we actually need to talk about it I mean gatekeeping does happen and it can be a really bad thing yeah I think that frivolousness does overshadow it and I honestly personally see something really dark going on with the duping culture on TikTok which has just been called anti-gatekeeping to justify its existence I think we're in this period of like late capitalism where every single thing is so accessible thanks to the free market and labor outsourcing that nothing really has value anymore. Like I'm not talking about status value where rich people like own their Birkins and to just like indicate that they're rich, but more so like objects that are important to certain communities. Mm -hmm. We talk a lot about like cultural appropriation, like the way that um, Rain and I were talking about it and the ways that brands have capitalized on like sacred or culturally significant objects, which kind of strips them of their ties. But we haven't really extended that idea to subcultures. I think Rain and I kind of went into it a little bit in that segment. But I kind of want to hash that out a bit more. Like we criticize people who get mad at randos for wearing band t-shirts, right? Like the people who bullied us about it. We get mad at people who criticize people for buying these t-shirts at Urban Outfitters. But I think that there might actually be validity to that like yes communities should be more open and inclusive but also why should everyone just be allowed to buy an identity at the store without putting any importance onto what that identity means to people right i think sneaker culture is a really good example of this right where like a certain model of shoes will be hiked up so high in resales and yeah the secondary market that they're no longer accessible to the people that made them cool in the first place like sneaker culture became cool within black communities it was there that it got something like jordan's got like the cred the cult value that they have now and so when you have like rich kids going and buying them in bulk and then reselling is telfar bags had a similar thing where they were really trying to put in certain honestly gatekeeping measures to make sure Mm -hmm. bots and like people who were going to just go and resell the bags couldn't buy them in bulk so that people who actually wanted them Mm -hmm. could access the bags i think that that's exactly what it is it's commodity fetishism right yeah but it's commodity fetishism over objects that started in lower income communities if for those of you who don't know commodity fetishism is essentially when some sort of spiritual value is attached to an object. It's like a Marxian concept. Like, okay, let's say there's a famous chair and you really want this type of chair because if you have this chair, you'll have certain status if you get it Mm -hmm. kind of thing. That chair is like the chair to have. But when you look at the chair, it's like a bunch of pieces of wood 
mm-hmm. nailed to each other. And that is kind of dislocating the actual labor process of making the chair from what the chair represents in your home. Yeah, and then if the chair is one that is utilized by like people of a certain subculture that you think are cool but like don't belong to, if you and buy- don't have any interest in belonging to, yeah, or honestly, like maybe haven't also done the work of belonging to, but you can buy proximity to it through buying those things. And so, talking about sneakers, I think. There's a lot of white boys that like want to get really into sneaker culture because they think that that is cool because they've seen the black community wearing them and like they get to buy proximity without actually experiencing what it means. There's this really great piece for Bustle about like gatekeeping and this writer Courtney Young says, quote, TikTok's viral culture has been known to create overnight cult followings around products and artists, which then result in hidden gems becoming tokens of status. Take, for instance, the Charlotte Tilbury Hollywood Flawless Filter Foundation. Previously gatekept as the red carpet beauty secret for celebrity makeup artists, the product went viral online over a year ago and can still be found in stores today. The tag hashtag Charlotte Tilbury Flawless Filter has more than 4 million views on TikTok, with users sharing dupes and alternatives and praying the product comes back in stock. So like in making these things infinitely accessible, we actually make them less accessible and actually create cult status out of the object by democratizing it, if that makes sense. It's kind of like dialectical. Like it kind of makes me think about... The dilemma that Anthony Bourdain had in terms of like he would go to these restaurants in really um, remote communities and he'd bring attention to them. But then in bringing attention to them, sometimes it would like effectively destroy and overrun those Mm -hmm. restaurants like in his wake. And that was something he really grappled with about that. I remember I I kept my Birkenstocks from like grade six. They're like the Boston Birkenstock clogs. And I just kept them because it's candy to have a pair of Birkenstocks. And then someone was like, oh, my God, you have the Bostons? Like, those are hard to get now. And I was like... Well, you also got the pink feel of Disruptors. And then it exploded almost immediately after you got them. And so you couldn't wear them anymore. It was the first time I was like, I'm going to buy, like, these this new pair of sneakers, like, whatever. And I just liked that they were pink. And a guy on Tinder was like... Uh, I'm going to have to like get you a new pair of shoes. Because the item has this value attached to it that's associated with a certain type of they basic. fell apart goal. really quickly. So Totally. But like now this has exploded even more because people are demanding like direct links to certain items. Like the most basic, like you will see a girl in a white fucking shirt, like a t-shirt and people are like, drop the link. Mm-hmm. She'll drop the link. And then it's like that item has cult value. This one basic item when it's like there are 1 million other versions of that item you can go buy but you need that item can i just say you want to know where i get all my white t-shirts michael's the craft store great hannah now everyone's gonna go run out and buy michael's shirts. sorry guys <laughs> they're like hanes or whatever one of those brands are they're the perfect i get large kit like youth size it's a perfect cut well i was talking to rain about the victoria paris socks victoria paris is like this fashion tiktoker oh yeah i think i read a profile on her yeah and she had these like literal white ribbed socks or something they kind of like slouchy socks and everyone was like drop the link to the socks and she was like these are hanes go out and fucking do your own research and buy your own clothing I like to say that I went out and found this item myself. Like I did the work of kind of curating what I'm wearing. Mm -hmm. I don't enjoy looking like everyone else. I think it's because I feel like individual style is the only way I can maintain my selfhood under capitalism, like a world that does not want me to be a person and be a self. So to me, like beyond the fact that bullying people into sending you a direct link to an item is so, so lazy to me and entitled, it also reinforces this really capitalistic mindset. If I see that a ton of people are buying the exact same item as me or like it becomes really popular and I haven't like gone and actually invested the money in it because I like to think about things before I purchase them typically, I'm I'm not going to buy that thing because I know that the faster there are a lot of people wearing it, the like shorter its longevity is going to be. And like ultimately, I mean, at this point in my life, I just want to invest in clothing pieces that I'll be wearing for the next 10 years. Well, also, we're, yeah, we're in a climate crisis. Like I don't want to be turning over no. my wardrobe at like an unprecedented rate. Like I don't want my style to be on trend because I don't want my style to go out of trend. And like back when I cared more about dressing trendy and like whatever had more time and money to do that, I liked looking at Pinterest and like looking at these places where I found fashion inspiration and then combing through Value Village to try and find pieces that mimicked that and obviously 
not everyone has the time for that. I don't really have the time for that as much anymore. But I feel like that was just a more satisfying experience for me than if I spent $60 on like an article of clothing from Urban Outfitters that looked like a other piece that I saw a girl wear on Instagram. I just, I feel like I haven't been participating in fashion, not for really any grounds other than I just haven't had like the energy mm-hmm. or like I haven't cared as much lately. But I think there are things outside of clothing as well. This is such a random one and like might not make sense and it's a detour. But so I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was 20. I learned about the symptoms of it through a friend who was diagnosed where she explained it. And I was like, holy shit, that's me. I went to my therapist and she was like, yeah, that that sounds about right. Was tested officially and like properly diagnosed, all of that, whatever. And it has made a huge difference in my life. It's honestly like one of the greatest things ever. And there was a while where like people weren't talking about women with ADHD and how it's underdiagnosed and they weren't really talking about adult ADHD. So I was really excited at first when I started seeing people talk about it online in discourse. And I had friends who were learning about it who were like, oh my God, like maybe I should get tested. It was like really exciting because I was like, I never would have known if it hadn't been through word of mouth. And it actually like maybe save my life to be diagnosed Mm -hmm. but now it gets to this thing where i have people who are like i experienced this one symptom from here that like you know on its own is just a normal human human quirk or behavior so like i might have it and on the one hand i'm like honestly it's better that someone who has it and suspects they might gets tested then somebody who has it just never know because you know they didn't know the signs like even if if somebody gets tested and they find out they don't have it then whatever but there's part of me that's just like the more we talk about it and the more we use this word or this term the more i feel like my experience is just going to become muddled into this like overall discourse like that you're gatekeeping ADD sort of just because like there was such a time when we were kids where people were afraid to like have their kids tested for ADHD because there was this panic that it was being overdiagnosed and that it was like no one wants to deal with their like hyper kids and so Mm. they're just putting them on drugs and that's why my parents didn't get my brother tested so I just don't want to go back to that place so there's this one part of me that does want I don't want to gatekeep but I think people need access to that information and like they need access to the diagnosis yeah but it's just hard because I get really scared about this thing that is an actual like barrier in my life becoming diminish because people think oh my god everyone has adhd these days it dilutes the actual experience of having it it's a trend like i'm scared that adhd is going to be treated like this trend right i mean the same thing that i was talking about with gaslighting it's like there are people who have actually experienced gaslighting and i don't want their experiences to be like muddled in with oh they saw it was trendy to be gaslit I don't want people to think that I think it's trendy to have ADHD. I would love to not have ADHD. Yeah, and I think a lot of cultures feel like that. Like Rain and I talked about people accusing black women of gatekeeping AAVE and gatekeeping curly hair. And it's like those things are actually really important to those communities. And they've faced a lot of stigma and discrimination because of those specific things. That now everyone being like, well, why can't I have it too? Why can't I have it? It just makes it... It makes the the significance of those things diluted. And I think the same can be said for subcultures. Like, I think we laugh at all these subcultures who are kind of pretentious about the fact that they, whatever, that they're kind of snobby and pretentious about the fact that no one can access the, the like, cultural signifiers of their communities. But it is like a lot of people join those communities because they they need like-minded people to be around. They've had a difficult time. Those communities have been stigmatized over time that now that you can just buy it at the store it's like yeah it it dilutes the original purpose of those communities and i think there's this this kind of journey from something becoming popular enough that it's destigmatized but then so popular that it develops a whole second level of stigma because by being a part of it you're just part of this fad Mm -hmm. where initially like you were there for completely other reasons well it's like this is gonna go to style for me later down the line whereas like this is someone's actual life and lifestyle and that's that can be someone's like ethnicity and culture i think that it can be just someone's subculture i wrote an essay about like the death of subcultures for this like internship i did and i really feel that strongly like i actually it makes me sad how many communities like 
have just been commodified on the internet and then kind of like stigmatized and made fun of afterwards because that they became a trend you know and like some people are actually like were there because they liked the thing and they're still there because they want to be and we make fun of them and we make fun of them for it i think in saying people are gatekeeping when they don't want to like share something with everyone that they may have taken a lot of time to find or like that they place sentimental value on we're like wielding a language that's meant to critique systemic power to actually reinforce other forms of power like capitalistic power Mm -hmm. and this is where i want to talk about commodity fetishism a little bit more so yeah like again with commodity fetishism like what i talked about with a birkin bag at the end of the day the birkin is just like a colored well-constructed piece of leather yeah but jane birkin doesn't even like jane birkin doesn't like that shit because let me tell you girls it's ugly and she's vegan and jane birkin is a vegan or a vegetarian she doesn't like the leather part she carried around a basket okay go fucking buy a basket from the store and that's your Birkin. But like commodity fetishism has made it so that the bag is some this like spiritual status and it means so much more than just a bag. The Birkin is wealth. Oh, and the yeah. same goes for hype beast culture. Brands like Supreme are creating so much scarcity and like restricted access around their items that they now have like teenagers, like you were saying, you know, lining up for hours to buy like a brick with Supreme on the label of it. Like that is a brick. Also, <laughs> okay, just going back to the Birkin, on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills in there's an episode where they throw a Birkin party for Garcelle, who's one of the newer cast members, but is like clearly not as well off as the other women. She's not married. Like she doesn't have like a rich husband. She's also the first black woman on the show. And like she's well, clearly. Yeah, she has yeah. a rich divorced husband, but not the same. Yes. But like is obviously doing very well for herself, but like within the context of some of the other mm-hmm. like flashy, flashy women is not as overtly wealthy and so they're like we're gonna throw her her first birkin party and it's almost like a sign that she's like actually being fully like fully like accepted into this group of women because now she's got a birkin now she's a real beverly hills housewife totally the cult value is in it's insane the birkin is the best example of it i think so yeah it used to be very much like a thing to establish status like among the rich but now because of the extreme democratization of objects cult value is now just a vehicle i think to drive capitalism it always was a capitalistic vehicle but i think now it's it's driving it at like a much faster rate and like anyone of any class status can just attain status through like this one object mm-hmm. but obviously that isn't really a good thing because it's not really like the case with robert roberts because at the end of the day capitalism wins and culture loses yeah everything's reoriented around the market and then is sold at this as this like universal good or a sign of progress when it's actually just market driven this is why i don't follow influencers on instagram because i think that coolness should be something that is earned and not bought and so i don't want to be sold coolness i don't want to buy something because i'm like she's cool and she's wearing it i'm like if i was cool i'd be cool well, this is something Rain actually brought up, and I don't think it made it into our uh, actual on-air discussion, but she was talking about her article about the it girl and how she thinks it kind of plays into this because the whole concept of an it girl is that she has something unattainable. There's some yeah. innate quality about her that's unattainable. So when every girl like then clamors to like buy what she looks like, it doesn't really work because that's not what the yeah. it status is. Chloe Sevigny is You're moving not the like... It's not that she's, like, the best-dressed girl in the world. She's just so cool that, like, she could wear anything. And I'd be like, wow, I love that it's going on my Pinterest board. The point is that what she wears is effortless and she doesn't think about it. And she isn't asking people to drop the Amazon link so that she can buy someone else's clothing. Like, that's not what makes her cool. It's, like, her inherent disposition. Like, you can't actually buy that. And, like, I know I'm just not, like, an inherently cool person. And that's Okay. It's not (laughs) self-deprecating, but I'm not going to try and buy something to replicate that. Well, I think that's what makes you cool in my eyes. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I think you're very cool, earnestly. My guy, Frederick Jameson, has an essay called... She loves. I love Frederick Jameson. Uh, He has an essay called Postmodernism and Consumer Society, where he talks about the explosion and, like, infinite proliferation of cultural movements and objects, and he links it to postmodern late capitalism. Um, He said that postmodernism has triggered, quote, the disappearance of a sense of history, the way in which our entire contemporary social system has little by little begun to lose its capacity to retain its own past, has begun to live in a perpetual present and in a perpetual change that obliterates traditions of the kind which all earlier social formations have had in one way or another to preserve. So like by collapsing cultural meaning around communities and identities in this bid to end gatekeeping, we're actually participating in the capitalist project to erase history. Yeah, I think we're boho chic. 
the idea of like bohemian fashion, which is something we associate with the hippie movement and like counterculture and a specific moment in history. And it's being sold to women that like, were they there would not be at all anywhere near hate Ashbury. No girls, those girls would not be living in a commune. No, 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 they would not be living there. But I think like there it's like the history. And I mean, there is also probably better examples but like the history of what that clothing signifies and the political meaning that it might have had is just completely diluted because somebody is gonna go to Coachella next weekend or whatever which is like like, that's gatekeeping the the (laughs) tickets to get into Coachella are insane you have to have certain status to get in like that's a gatekeeping mechanism someone that like is by in every way like the opposite of bohemian is probably the most likely to wear something boho chic you know what i mean yeah and i think that's like kind of the perfect example of why i think this has been kind of an insidious turn and this word has gone so far away from itself because at the end of the day like i feel like initial gatekeeping the criticisms against gatekeeping initially was that gatekeepers were people kind of above deciding who gets to go in and out and now it feels like gatekeepers are anyone and those people are inhibiting us from having the most access to anything and everything. And we kind of use that criticism in service of like an argument about democracy and democratizing everything and making everything accessible. When like when Marina and I said, there's a difference between accessibility and availability, right? In order to gatekeep, you have to be in a, some kind of position of power, whether it's like, you know, institutionally or even just social capital, like you have to have something. You can't just be like a cute girl on TikTok and be capable of gatekeeping information. Well, I wonder if like because social media has made it so that people can have a a sort of power that comes just from having visibility rather than actual monetary power. I I wonder if that kind of changes the power dynamic. I, I think this is the issue that like we were just talking about. Like, I think that words die when everybody stops using them and like they just come out of like our collective vocabulary and that we'll just see in time whether or not that happens it could very well happen words coming in and out of fashion or just like can you guys just use your critical thinking abilities and and just learn that um getting your amazon link on a tiktok comment section is not you defeating gatekeeping stop using buzzwords and don't be dumb Rehash is hosted by Hannah Rain and me, Maia. It's produced and edited by me, and the intro and outro song is produced by our talented friend, Ian Mills. Thanks for listening.